Hello and welcome to our brand new podcast, The Climate Clinic, brought to you by the Global Consortium on Climate and Health Education. My name is Adesh Sundaresan, and I'll be your host for this series, Be the Expert. Each week, I'll be joined by distinguished guests to bring you the latest headlines within climate and health research from the leading evidence-based journals around the world. Tune in to learn about the health implications of climate change, how this is affecting us today, and what needs to be done. By the end of it, you'll know all you need to know in order to be the expert. Welcome back to a new episode of Be the Expert with myself, Mark Fudernick, and Dr. Adesh Sundaresan. Today will be the first of three episodes where we begin to explore the latest research that looks at how those of you who are, who are or will be living in urban and suburban areas, which is most of you, might find your health affected by climate change. Adesh, why is this an important issue to be discussing? Well, as we all know, Mark, most human beings are now living in built-up urban environments. In 2008, the global urban population surpassed that of our rural population. And by mid-century, by 2050, you know, we can expect more than 70% of the world to be in urban areas, to be living in urban areas, built-up environments. In some countries, like the UK, for example, it's projected to be up to 90% of, of the inhabitants to live in urban areas by then. Some important features of urbanization are these sort of in intensive infrastructure setups, the built up environments, paved surfaces, transport networks that we're so familiar with now, traffic and human congestion. And of course, we'll touch on this in our podcast today, but significant temperature differences between the urban and surrounding rural areas. And of course, the, the natural absence of, of, of green habitats and open spaces in the built urban environment as well. I'll also mention here before I will dive into our articles, Mark, that previously the main threats to human health from the earliest industrial cities of the sort of 19th century, for example, were vector-borne diseases and infectious diseases due to the population density and poor sanitation. These have now been superseded by non-communicable diseases in the more affluent cities, uh, mainly due to our sedentary lifestyles and, of course, the exposure to air pollution, which we'll cover. And it's really the mass car and vehicle use that's responsible for most of the huge increases in air pollution that we're seeing in our cities. So in this episode, we're covering a review article titled Urban Air Pollution, Urban Heat Island and Human Health, a review of the literature. This was published in the journal Sustainability in July 2022. In this article, the authors look at the research around urban heat island effect, air pollution, the sources and contributing factors for each, and the subsequent health impacts. They also then explore the literature around solutions to mitigate each of these issues in the built environment. Interesting, this is a pretty new field as demonstrated the fact that 75% of the studies and documents they reviewed are less than a decade old. That's very interesting, Mark. Let's firstly dive into their findings on air pollution in this review. The sources of air pollution around the world really differ depending on the country in question. So in developing countries, we can see that the main sources of air pollution, uh, ambient air pollution, are from cooking and from industry. But in high-income developed countries, the main source, as I've mentioned, is cars or, or vehicles. In fact, the authors actually write that the best overall indicator of a city's health is its air quality. Impacts from the emissions um, are worst in terms of health impacts for those who live close to busy roads, as we've seen. And it's not only the direct health impacts that are a problem, but actually these 
the, the, the emissions that come from these vehicles contribute about a fifth of global greenhouse gas emissions, which then play into that whole cycle of, of global warming, climate change, and, and further subsequent indirect health impacts from that sort of chain. Ozone and particulate matter 2.5 have also have higher concentrations at higher temperatures. So those two in particular are propagated and worsened by climate change and global warming. So you can see here is a classic example of climate change feeding into the already harmful impacts from air pollution from ozone and particulate matter. Now, we're not going to cover the specific health impacts of air pollution here again in this episode, but you can refer back to the old episode if interested. And Mark, before I hand over back to you, you know, listen to this, there are an estimated 1.45 billion vehicles in the world right now in use. And there are only 10 million of these are electric. So there's 1.5 billion and 10 million. So a very, very, very small percentage of the vehicles that we have in the world are electric and therefore are contributing um, a huge amount to air pollution and to global warming. They maintain projections of electric cars increasing dramatically to almost 150 million by 2030. However, even with such a huge increase in electric cars on the road, over 90% of cars in 2030 will not be all electric and therefore still burning gas. So after that background on air pollution in cities and urban environments, they also explored the urban heat island effect. For those listeners who are not so familiar, the urban heat island effect refers to the fact that urban areas tend to experience higher temperatures as the built infrastructure absorbs more heat and radiates it back into the local environment. The urban heat, in, urban heat island effect intensity, meaning the difference between city and nearby rural temperatures, generally aligns with an increase in a city's latitude as well as population density and structural development level. So urban heat island intensity exhibits diurnal as well as seasonal variations with maximum recorded intensities of close to 10 degrees Celsius and an average value of 2 to 4 degrees Celsius. So that's a lot of heat. And, and when we're looking at some of these features of the built urban environment that contributes to the adverse health impacts that are experienced during extreme heat events, some of these characteristics that are attributed to older housing structures, you know, congest congestion, a lack of ventilation, and abs absence of cooling mechanisms as well. Often these housing units that have been constructed a long time ago are more likely to be located in areas possessing dated urban planning, so close to uh, traffic, close to industry, poor vegetation in terms of cover, um, and being located away from green or blue areas as well. So these are just some of the characteristics pertaining to urban areas that leave it more vulnerable often to um, their impacts from extreme heat. They also looked at the evidence around the combined effects of urban pollution and urban heat on our health. One study by Lai and Cheng reported that in the warm center of metropolitan areas, the urban heat island, in conjunction with transport-related air pollution, increases local hospital respiratory admissions. And other studies have found similar results for children in America. So what can be done to tackle this dual threat that we're facing of the urban heat island effect and urban air pollution on health? Well, in their exploration of the potential solutions, they split the section into three components. They first look at urban planning solutions to improve health. Some of the examples they cite were having more public transport available, especially in higher density cities. So there's a study from Rissell that shows that people who use public transport achieve about 15 minutes more exercise than those who rely on their cars for transport. 
Secondly, they found a large body of literature that focus on, focuses on healthy cities and healthy built environments. And some examples include a US EPA program called Smart Growth, which focuses on building compact, walkable, self-sustaining neighborhoods. It rests on the principles of mixing land uses and functional uses and preserving open spaces and providing accessible active transport options. They talked about new urbanism, which resembles smart growth, but it's more architecturally oriented. So Iravani reviewed the literature on the health impacts of new urbanism and found that the compact and mixed use new urbanist planning resulted in positive health impacts for all demographics in American cities. And Ewing discovered that compactness measures in cities, so increased compactness, resulted in reduced BMI, obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, and diabetes. These reductions result from functional physical activity in the form of active travel to work, shopping, and other destinations, as well as the decrease in air pollution. They also talked about transit-oriented development, which is a concept that includes the provision of transit nodes in city centers or newly developing areas with all of the resident needs nearby to those nodes. And these nodes are then connected to one another by transit buses or light rail or metro lines. And these arrangements can increase walkability and reduce car use and hence are beneficial for communities' health. Those are some really interesting suggestions, Mark, that they've, they've got under potential solutions in this review. It also takes me back to an article that I'd read in The Lancet about a year or two ago, which was dubbed the 15-minute city, which is very, very similar um, themed to this. And it was a concept of, you know, having a, a compact city as the vision for the future, which is an equitable, uh, climate-friendly, health-fostering or health-promoting sort of urban environment to live in, where everything was located within about a 15-minute walking radius. The whole purpose of this is to reduce our ambient air pollution from pretty much axing you know vehicle congestion in our built-up urban environments but also encouraging people to regularly exercise nearby to get their groceries to, you know to meet people to socialize and I think the concept as you've described uh, really is supposed to in theory lead to a happier healthier so- urban society I will mention though that the you know the authors did cover the fact that the theoretical benefits of reducing air pollution from compact cities uh, is often not fully realized in practice. In some cases, they found that higher densities are actually might even be associated with higher levels of air pollution. And really, the way they posited this in terms of their conclusion on this was that it seems that the behavioral aspects of the residents in these compact cities is also a key factor in determining the levels of air pollution. So the individual choices that people still make in these cities still have a knock-on impact outside of the the planning and the design and the architecture of the city as well. So the second um, section under solutions was focused not on urban planning, but on technological solutions for reducing air pollution. So the first of these that they touched on was um, electric vehicles and hydrogen cell vehicles. So these are zero local emissions. At, so that means at tailpipe of these vehicles, uh, technologies. And they lower the air pollution, not only in the new urban hubs, but also importantly in the large suburban areas, which have a slightly lower population density, where people often require cars or vehicles to travel between distances that are further apart um, outside of your sort of core metropolitan area. Other advantages of these electric vehicles or hydrogen cell vehicles are a reduced noise pollution, higher energy efficiency, reduced fossil fuel dependency as well. 
Uh, obviously, the recharging needs to happen with renewable sources like solar, wind, or you know, hydro. Uh, and there are some issues, you know, despite the obvious air pollution reduction and the sustainability credentials that they boast. There is, there has been some hesitancy in ele- the adoption of electric vehicles, and that's really primarily down to range anxiety and the lack of proper recharging infrastructure. If you can't charge your vehicle, and it's gonna, it's not, you know, it, you're gonna break down at some point, and you're not gonna have if you don't have the infrastructure to charge that, you're in trouble. So urban planners and designers here have to play a strong role in providing the opportunities um, and locations of car charging stations in their plans and designs for cities and urban environments in order to re- reduce this barrier to usage, Mark. Another point moving on is hydrogen fuel cells. So uh, they're an excellent renewable source. They convert hydrogen to electricity and they discharge only water vapor and warm air, really, as their as their byproducts. The cells produce um, a DC, DC current that runs the electric motor within the vehicle. And they're usually paired with batteries and regenerative brakes that can also produce electricity on their own as well. The cars themselves, the, the vehicles that run with these hydrogen fuel cells, need only a very small fuel tank and they can be refilled with hydrogen very quickly. And they have a really long range uh, once they're filled with fuel. But the current availability usage, market penetration is pretty low. Um, and this is really, again, because the capacity or the, the infrastructure to refill um, with hydrogen is limited. But it's, it's predicted to be a major part of our future vehicle fleet, but it's currently not the norm or not, you know, in, in mass use. And as with charging stations, our urban planners really have to allocate provisions in their plans and designs for, you know, the refilling infrastructure. Adesh, are you starting to see these in London? I'm seeing lots of them in Southern California. Well, interesting you mentioned that. This was about June last year. Now, the mayor of London launched England's first hydrogen double-decker bus as well. The The first um, hydrogen bus fleet was launched, and there were about 20 new hydrogen fuel cell double-decker buses, which were... Um, released in order to or put on into you circulation to reduce transport for London's carbon footprint as well um, and help. And, and they're joining a fleet of over you know 500 electric buses. And it's one of the largest electric vehicle fleets in Western Europe. And there is an, a goal in London to make all London buses zero emissions by 2030. So we're, we're on our way there. Um, I think in terms of our individual vehicles outside of public transport, um, we probably need to remove those barriers for, for entry and usage. Coming on to the last point in terms of technological solutions, they touched on urban green infrastructure. This is something a lot of people are familiar with now um, because it's so widely talked about. But the um, overall, the removal of transport related air pollution uh, is is dependent on a number of factors pertaining to that individual vegetation that's available. So it's it's a function of the size of the leaf, so smaller leaf sizes, the leaf complexity, the height of the vegetation, the density of the vegetation around in those urban areas. The, the point I'm trying to make here is depending on the type of road you have and the type of um, arc, you know, urban planning that you have, different heights and densities and types of vegetation have differing levels of success at trapping that air pollution and removing it. So Mayer conducted a, a study and they basically in this trial, it was in Lancaster in the UK, they planted silver birch trees outside a row of terraced houses that were right bang next to a main road in Lancaster. So their goal was to reduce the small particles released into the air that we know that we've covered previously that can penetrate deep into our lungs, enter our bloodstreams and harm our organs. But they discovered that, you know, the planting of hedges in the silver birch trees as barriers at a busy road reduced the particulate pollution there by more than 50%. Now, 
I'd like to say this is homogenous evidence across different, all the different studies. There have been mixed evidence about the effectiveness as on of plants at reducing our air pollution. Overall, the trend is suggesting, you know, if you get it right and you match it well to the type of road that you have, the type of pollution that you have and the right vegetation, this can be quite effective, Mark. In terms of this solution, I love the idea that picking the right roadside vegetation could reduce human exposure to pollutants. So this is passive for residents, but really effective in protecting their health. A final really interesting solution is pollution absorbing buildings. So I actually hadn't come across this before or, you know, call me ignorant, but I hadn't heard of these before. But EU funded research has actually developed a technology for making builders buildings light sensitive. So they, they use titanium dioxide. So this serves as a photocatalyst and it's similar to how chlorophyll works in plants. Um, and in the presence of oxygen and water vapor, it just reacts and neutralizes pollutants in the air. So it also converts nitrogen oxide, which we know is harmful to human health, um, and one of the main sort of four constituents of our ambient air pollution that can be very harmful, into harmless nitrates. And it's it's known, you know, commercially as Tyochem, this 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 tech that they're using. So it's very interesting. These some of these technologies that are up and coming. These materials that detoxify our air are fascinating. I've also seen roof shingles that do the same thing, decreasing pollution right at your home. Although these new cements and coatings that convert toxic chemicals into benign ones are a great health measure, they don't achieve the double effect of improving health and decreasing overall emissions, which is what we really need to strive for. So finally, the authors look at mitigation strategies to reduce urban heat island health impacts. One of the most impactful and cost-effective interventions are cool roofs and cool pavements. So light-colored roof and pavements will reflect solar radiation and decrease subsequent um, emittance of heat via the infrared radiation that we discussed following the absorption of the heat. So this dual mechanism helps keep buildings cool, which also decreases energy use. And pavements inherently have a low albedo. Albedo is a measure of reflectivity. So it's a big urban heat island contributor. But cool pavements are a really effective urban heat island mitigation measure because they cover so much territory in our cities. It's also important to note that these don't have to be white. There are new com compounds, new paints, that allow reflective surfaces to come in every color, even dark colors which are designed to reflect all the energy except that in the visible spectrum of that color that we want to see. So it reflects all the infrared radiation and can really be quite reflective despite a dark color. And then we also talk about increasing green areas. So green surfaces, in addition to absorbing heat, they offer temperature control as well, and they also help control storm runoff. So green walls and roofs, um, and other green areas can be strategically placed throughout a city to break up the solid infrastructure. And finally, we need to address public policy measures. We need improved integration of public health policies and urban planning practices. I really love this review, Mark. I think it's very solutions oriented. And though it's not our classical um, type of article that we've been covering thus far and be the expert, it really does look at the solutions in our urban and built environment. So in conclusion, for all of our listeners, the take-homes from this review are that the impacts of the individual stresses caused by the urban heat island effect and urban air pollution is higher than the simple sum total of the two. You know, studies have indicated there's a real complex uh, but direct relationship between urban pollution, the urban heat island effect, and worsening human health. 
There's also a need for um, research on the effectiveness of these urban planning strategies that we've discussed and air pollution and urban heat island mitigation measures for improving our health too. Zero emission transportation, cool roofs and pavements, more greenscape and more public transport options, and then new materials designed to convert toxins to benign chemicals can, can combine to make future city life much healthier, which is really important considering the continued urbanization of the global population as more and more of us move to the city. So next time we'll continue to explore this topic of how climate change impacts our urban population, such as through increased exposure to infectious diseases, all with the goal of mitigating these effects so we can all live happier and healthier lives. Thanks for listening to Be the Expert on the Climate Clinic podcast.